Hey there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Wednesday, September 23rd. Coming up, we'll talk about the throne speech in long-term care, Canada at a COVID crossroads, and what the province can and should be doing to slow the spread of COVID-19. All of that coming up next on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. This is Premier Ford's second chance to take action when it comes to long-term care. Now, that's the headline from the unions representing Ontario healthcare workers who are once again sounding the alarm bells. And joining us now is Candace Rennick, who is with CUPE Ontario. She joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Candace, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. The press conference from the other day, you and the other unions, you were urging immediate action to end the crisis in long-term health care. And I just want to be really clear about this. There is a belief out there that we're still in a crisis. Oh, yeah. I mean, the crisis has existed for well over a decade. It's just the pandemic uh, shone a brighter light on the situation. And what is it you need? What are you and the other unions asking from the uh, provincial government? What is the most pressing need? Well, I think first and foremost, we need a guaranteed legislated staffing standard. There's a bill before the legislature right now, Bill 13, which would uh, guarantee residents four hours of hands-on care uh, per day. That would be a good start towards fixing the staffing crisis. We need a commitment uh, of increased funding. And during this COVID pandemic and the COVID crisis, we need guarantees that Frontline workers are going to have immediate access to personal protective equipment like the N95 mask uh, when they need it. Okay, we've heard from the Premier several times. As a matter of fact, just in his latest presser that we just aired here, uh, he stated that there is plenty of PPE that's uh, available and being produced, but that is not the feeling amongst uh, QP uh, members and uh, workers in long-term care? At the West End Villa in Ottawa right now, which is the deadliest outbreak in the province, 11 residents dead since the beginning of uh, the month, dozens infected with COVID, dozens more waiting for their test results. They are not getting access to the N95 mask when caring for residents who have confirmed cases of COVID. So the Premier's office is telling us we have a stockpile of millions of masks and we're telling him that they are somewhere under lock and key because our members are not getting access to them. Yeah, just how concerned is the membership and our workers in long-term care, particularly with the numbers skyrocketing the COVID cases in the province, and the Premier himself saying that we're in a second wave? Yeah, workers are incredibly afraid. They're working under a shadow of fear. They're fearful for themselves. They're fearful of infecting their residents, bringing this virus home to their families. They're worried of being blamed for, you know, causing death and illness. I mean, It's a horrible situation, and it's putting people in very difficult uh, situations. People's mental health is, you know, uh, not that great right now in this sector. And, you know, we need immediate action to correct this issue, especially on the verge of a second wave. Well, obviously, the first wave took a devastating toll on long-term care facilities. Are you concerned that we're about to see history, a very uh, short-term history here, repeat itself? I am, and I think it's because... uh, we haven't learned any lessons from the first wave. Where is the comprehensive strategy on staffing? Why have we not seen an announcement from this government about increasing staffing levels in long-term care? Why are workers still being exposed to COVID going from room to room to room amongst our most vulnerable population without access to the N95 masks? Like, we've been here. This is deja vu. It shouldn't be. 
And uh, obviously, uh, we heard that one of the first things the government did was they stopped uh, workers going from uh, facility uh, to facility, long-term care home to long-term care home. But uh, clearly, that has not been enough that uh, we need staffing levels uh, up. Yeah, there isn't enough staff. And I mean, the single site order is good public policy. We support that. But the reality is it comes with a whole host of problems, like labor shortages. It means uh, less staff are available to work in these facilities. And the government has done nothing to recruit uh, and improve staffing conditions so that people want to go and work in long-term care and they want to stay there. And it also means that people are having... Uh, you know, to find other areas of work because the the pay isn't that great. So people have to cobble together multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. And now uh, being forced to work in only one facility is creating a whole bunch of economic downfalls for people's, you know, personal situations as well, which haven't been considered. Are you expecting anything? Uh, I know this is a provincial jurisdiction, but are you expecting anything in today's uh, throne speech from the uh, federal government? Is there uh, some sort of hopes that uh, perhaps some funding will come the way of a long-term uh, care and, or at least this uh, second wave and another impending crisis is going to be acknowledged by the government? Of course, we're hopeful. We uh, Our intel tells us that we're going to hear announcements on pharmacare and childcare. The signals are that we're not going to hear much about long-term care, which I think will be devastating to the people who are looking to the federal government for some leadership. Uh, we need increased federal transfer payments from the federal government. The fact of the matter is we have the fewest number of beds, the lowest staffing levels per capita anywhere in Canada. We need more money to raise up those numbers, and we need leadership from the federal government around access to personal protective equipment, they can be ordering industry to produce more masks so that we can get these masks into the hands of people to keep residents alive. We're looking for leadership from the federal government. Unfortunately, uh, all of the signals and the intels that we've received suggest that that's not going to be coming for long-term care today. I feel like I uh, say this every time we talk about long-term care, but uh, things have to change and they have to change now. Status quo is unacceptable. It's just not good enough. Uh, Candace, thank you so much for your time with us this afternoon. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Take care. Candace Rennick is with CUPE Ontario. Joining us now to run down some of the latest when it comes to COVID is Dr. Michael Gardham at Women's College Hospital. The doctor joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Gardham, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Okay, uh, first of all, I want to get your take on today's announcement from the Ontario government. Will COVID testing in neighborhood pharmacies, that's going to begin on Friday, will that, do you think, ease the burden on testing centers? Uh, You know, certainly it will help. We've seen a a real influx of people going to testing centers over the last few weeks, probably largely driven by people going back to schools, going back to university. I think that that's certainly driven a lot of it. And, And you know, so having more capacity will obviously help. It's it's just one of the strategies we need to bring into play over this fall, though. It's that, that in and of itself is not going to be the, the solution to all of our problems. Okay, I want to get into some of those other strategies in a second, but I think the other question a lot of folks have when it comes to testing in neighborhood pharmacies, is it safe? Do you think people should be concerned if they're shopping at shoppers, if there's asymptomatic people, uh, they're getting tested? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely going to have to figure that out, right? They can't obviously uh, have the testing done in a very crowded area. They're going to have to figure out how to really cordon that off so that when the testing is done, nobody else is around. I mean, in terms of the risk of somebody picking up COVID, just walking past somebody who's going in to get tested, I think the risks of that are, are very, very low. So that I'm not so much worried about, but I am worried about the actual testing itself 
sometimes people cough when they get tested or they or they they sneeze and you need to make sure that that's away from other crowded areas all right uh, we also heard from the premier today that saliva tests will be offered in three different hospitals including the one you're at women's uh, college hospital uh, what can you tell us about that well, the saliva test is something that first came out of uh, British Columbia, where they've been doing it now for a couple of weeks. And basically, the idea is that you're giving a, 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 a mouthful of sort of salt water for people to swish around, gargle with, and then and then and then spit back into a specimen cup. And the idea is that they won't have to go through the uh, discomfort of having a nasal pharyngeal swab, which is a lot more irritating. Um, the saliva tests probably aren't quite as sensitive as the nasopharyngeal aspirate. The nasopharyngeal test is probably the, the gold standard. Um, but if it allows us to process a lot more people quicker, uh, then I think it's a very valid thing for us to be doing. Um, and I gather the federal government is still holding up a bit in terms of the validation of this to say that they actually approve it. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because Premier Ford uh, was really uh, hard calling out Health Canada during this uh, press conference uh, last hour over lack of approvals. Uh, let's have a listen to some of what the Premier had to say. Never in a million years would I think it would take months to get a saliva test. It's amazing how other areas around the world can get this done, but Health Canada is, just can't get it done. Like, man, I, I know the old CEO went out the door and the new one's in. Well, my friend, you got a big job. Let's start seeing results. All right. Is that fair comment, do you think? Has Health Canada been kind of dragging their, their feet, or are there some legitimate concerns when it comes to saliva tests? Well, you know, you know, saliva tests, in a way, are no different than uh, Health Canada uh, giving the approval for drugs or vaccines, that sort of thing. They need the... Uh, they need the various testing to be done. They need the studies to be done, and then it has to go through uh, a, a, a process. And certainly governments are not known to be super fast when it comes to doing paperwork. So that, I agree, that needs to be sped up. But you can't speed up the testing. You can't speed up the studies. Otherwise, we're getting into that weird sort of zone what's been happening in the U.S. with the federal government there pushing companies to release vaccines before they've been studied properly. Everything has to go through the right hoops, but I do agree that when it comes to bureaucracy, that part we do have to speed up. There's no doubt. Okay, what do we know, though, about the efficacy of those uh, saliva tests? Are they reliable? Um, they're reliable. I think the issue is is they, they probably don't pick up uh, quite as low levels of virus as the nasopharyngeal swabs do. And there's studies going on right now in Ontario looking at this. Uh, so this is something that's going to be evaluated more uh, and we'll, we'll get more information over the, over the next uh, you know, few months. But the concept is a, very, is a very straightforward one. We know the virus lives at the back of your throat, so they're just picking it up that way. Um, but it may not be quite as sensitive. In other words, it may pick up slightly higher levels of virus than the nasopharyngeal swab that people are currently getting. All right, just to put this in layperson's uh, terms or perspective, in other words, what we're trying to figure out here is whether or not uh, the uh, saliva test gives a uh, false uh, negative, and if it does, uh, how often? Is it kind of like a margin of error when it comes to, say, a political poll and how much we're uh, really willing to, to live with whether or not we go ahead with these? That's right. That, that, that is exactly it, right? So typically there's a trade-off between convenience and, and speed. Like, can you get this done easier? Are more people going to do it because it's easier to do? But maybe there's a bit of a trade-off and it's not, it's not going to be quite as accurate. 
Um, and so if you get a positive result, very helpful, because a positive is a positive. If you get a negative result, that's where you have to ask yourself, is this a true negative or could this be a false negative? And what do you do about that? So that when you bring in different tests that have different sensitivities like that, it makes the uh, decision making a little bit more complicated. But frankly, I'm sure we can figure that out. Joined in the line by Dr. Michael Gardham at Women's College Hospital. You mentioned this a second ago about uh, how we're approaching a COVID right now, particularly with the uh, numbers uh, spiking, the case uh, levels spiking in this province and right across the country. Uh, as of Friday, we're going to have uh, more testing available with uh, pharmacies. We've just been talking about different types of tests, saliva tests. Is that enough? Those are kind of some of the pillars that uh, we've heard from the uh, provincial government when it comes to their fall plan for COVID. Is that enough, doctor, do you think, to kind of turn the tide on this COVID spike, or do we need yeah. to do more? We need to do more. I mean, there's an old saying that says uh, you, you can't fatten a cow by weighing it. You know, by bringing in more and more tests, we're, 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 we're weighing the cow, but we need to do other things to actually control the spread of, of COVID. And so part of that is acting on those tests in terms of contact tracing, and we know how difficult that has been. We know, for example here in the city that 50% of cases, we don't know where people got it from. So that's, that's alarming. And then we have to make fundamental, very unpopular decisions on what we're doing in terms of our public health measures. For example, we've opened bars, we've opened restaurants, and now have indoor dining. We've also opened schools, we've also opened universities. We are going to see more spread as people's bubbles have dramatically increased. So what are we willing to give up in order to allow us to continue to have things open? I mean, the way to think of it is that every time you contact somebody, that's a risk. And so if normally, let's say back in March, you were in contact with five people, that's low risk. Now, because your kids are at school, et cetera, they may be in contact with 100 kids. You can see how very quickly your risk goes up. So what are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up indoor dining in order for kids to go to school or give up bars? Those are the kind of conversations we have to have, and we have to have them, frankly, now, because we're running out of time to make a dent on this before it gets uh, very complicated this fall. Yeah, so you believe we really do have to consider uh, closing down uh, bars, uh, indoor dining restaurants, uh, gyms of red as well is also a uh, hot spot uh, when it comes to uh, transmission of uh, COVID. I mean, we have Ontario estimates are heading towards 1,000 COVID cases a day in the next uh, four weeks. So uh, we re really do have to have those conversations. Well, we do. And I, I think, you know, whether it's whether it's closing down restaurants and bars or whether it's we change our behavior. For example, if you, if you close down restaurants and bars, but people are still having large parties and they're you know, greatly expanding the number of people they're in contact with, all we've done is shut down a bunch of uh, businesses and we haven't actually solved our problem. People have to quit being in, in as much contact with other people, however it is that they're doing that. And if so, if a lot of that is in private homes or at private parties, then that's what we should be focusing on more than the restaurants and uh, bars. I mean, my understanding, and from what I see around my neighborhood, the restaurants uh, are being very uh, respectful of the social distancing rules. It's not clear to me how much spread is happening there versus behind closed doors in someone's house. So we need to be, it's just we can't be in, in as much contact with other people as we are now compared to what we were doing back in March. Doctor, do you think it's possible we can kind of put the genie back in the bottle? Because, yeah, you speak of uh, March and uh, April. I mean, this was all new. It was very unknown. Yeah. It was very scary for a lot of people. 
I mean, six months down the line now, you hate to say it, but I think there's a certain comfortability and there's certainly been a fatigue, a COVID fatigue that is set in. Do you think it's possible people can get back to, back to, I don't know, sort of a lockdown mentality? Well, I think that's been part of the challenge, right? Because the, the uh, communication has been, you know, almost pleading with people to do the right thing. Uh, And, you know, in my experience in public health, that often doesn't work very well. You often need to be more directive in terms of what you're asking people to do. So I do believe we are looking in the the coming weeks at taking a step backward. What I don't want us to do is to take all the steps backward. I don't want us to get into a situation like March where basically everything was closed down. There has to be a happy medium there, but we do need to back up the bus a bit because uh, we're in a phase now of exponential growth. So we'll have thousands of cases a day uh, in just a few weeks if we don't do something now. And those cases, right now, the hospitalization and death rates are low, but they will start to creep up in the coming weeks as well. Yeah, just finally, what is the situation like uh, at your hospital, at Women's College Hospital, and and others when it comes to uh, COVID cases? Is there a growing concern and a worry about hospitals uh, getting overrun? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the literature suggests that, you know, uh, if we look around the world, the hospitalizations, uh, ICU admissions, and deaths, typically lag the increase in cases by about six weeks. So we've had a increasing number of cases for the last month or so. So, you know, I think all of us are expecting that as we start to hit October, the hospitalization rates are going to start creeping up. And with that, the death rate will start creeping up. And those rates, too, are going to increase exponentially. And so None of us want to get in the situation we were in in February and in March where we were terrified we were going to overwhelm the system. Right now, we're overwhelming our testing centers, but we're not overwhelming the inpatient beds. But that will change. That will get worse if we don't start to uh, change people's behaviors again. Dr. Gardham, appreciate the time as always and the perspective. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Here goes Dr. Michael Gardham at Women's College Hospital. And thanks so much for listening to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. A reminder, you can listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 p.m. at 640toronto.com. You can find us on Spotify. Just search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or, of course, download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.